Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As coronavirus continues its spread throughout the globe, the United States now leads the world in the number of confirmed cases, according to Johns Hopkins University. And while the top concern is to keep everybody as healthy as possible, the other major concern is keeping the U.S. economy afloat. Congress has come to an agreement to pass a $2.2 trillion coronavirus stimulus package to keep the economy moving while everything is shut down to help slow the spread of COVID-19. This will be the third emergency spending package that Congress has advanced and the largest economic aid measure in U.S. history. It's going to include direct payments to Americans, help for small businesses, and help for hospitals and healthcare workers. For more on how the stimulus bill could help you, we spoke to Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios. Massive, massive rescue package, around $2 trillion. So beyond that of what Congress had delivered and the government had delivered following the 2008 financial crisis. And its impact is really a lot of money, billions towards small businesses, billions toward large corporations like airlines and hotels and industries that are being hit very hard by this direct payments to Americans to help them through these economic hard times as we face a recession, as my business editors tell me, ahead. And it really is just, you know, it's a ton of money. I've spoken with a lot of people on the Hill. And mind you, you know, this was originally a Republican bill. It's really interesting to me that they haven't really thought that much about how to pay for this or worried about the national debt or deficit here. The focus so far has been very much so on trying to get much needed aid into hospitals, into communities, and much needed money into Americans' hands. That's an important distinction. We really don't know 100% how we'll pay for all this. This is going to be added to the national debt. The debt limit is actually suspended until 2021. So right now, it's not really a big concern. I mean, it's, of course, Republicans' national debt. The deficit is always key on their minds. But from a lot of Republicans I've spoken with, they look at this as a much longer-term problem, and they look at the deal that they're dealing with now as something that's emergency. It's emergency funding, and they're worried about helping Americans, stimulating the economy, and keeping people slow during this hard time. So let's get into some of the details that we know. There's going to be direct payments made to a lot of Americans. Most Americans will be receiving a one-time direct deposit of up to $1,200. Couples will get $2,400, and those will be phased out based on income levels. So if you make $75,000 a year or less, you will receive this full $1,200 payment that will phase out up until those who receive $99,000 annually. If you receive $99,000 annually or more, you will not get that direct payment. Families will receive an additional $500 per child. And this is true. One question I know that a lot of Axios readers have been getting is, what about those who receive Social Security or other means-tested benefit programs that that's your sole source of income? This does apply to those people. If you rely on Social Security, you rely on other benefits, you will still receive these direct payments. I've seen that over $300 billion are going to be sent to small businesses. What do we know about that? And then is this something that they have to apply for and all that? They're in loan guarantees. And so people who want to get a loan, there's $367 billion in loan guarantees for small businesses. And those are for these businesses that are keeping their workers on the payroll, even though they're still at home. And so they look at this as small businesses, companies, 500 employees or less. 
and they could get up to $10 million in forgivable FOMOS business loans. And that is a very key thing there to say forgivable. So the way that they've structured this stimulus package is small businesses, well, these loans will be forgiven, whereas for some of the larger corporations like the airline industries and others, they will have to pay these back over time. How about people that are unemployed, losing jobs because of this? Uh, I know that there's been a lot made about everybody just kind of cutting back, so they're having to start furlough workers, all sorts of stuff like that. What about unemployment? The program's extended unemployment insurance program, uh, Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader, has actually called it unemployment on steroids. It expands eligibility and offers workers an additional $600 per week on top of what they would already be getting from the state, and that will extend for four months. It also extends those benefits through December of 31st, through the end of this year. And for load workers, can stay on as employees so that when this crisis ends, you can quickly go back to work. We've been talking a lot about hospitals and healthcare workers and the shortages that they face with masks and other protective equipment. What does this bill do for them? So a big thing that a lot of Democrats had pushed for in these negotiations was to give more money direct to hospitals, provide more money to some of those supplies and resources that hospitals and communities across the country are in shortage of. So this will inject $100 billion into hospitals and the country's health system and provide billions in some of those resources like PPE, as people call it, the personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, more money for testing supplies, more training and workforce development. And these are just a few things. I mean, if, if you go through the bill, you'll see there's a lot more in aid and defining exactly what different if you're, you know, if you're a nurse or you're a doctor, there's a lot more there for you. But these are the kind of broad scope of what they're giving to the health community. And what about the big industries, airlines, cruise lines? What about them? $500 billion is allotted in loans to these large corporations. And $25 billion of that $500 billion is carved out directly for airlines. It's really $29 billion if you include cargo air carriers. So $25 billion will be giving to passenger air carriers. $4 billion is going for some of the cargo air carriers. And then $500 billion in total for some of these other industries, large corporations, hotels, cruise lines, all of that will be wrapped into this. And this is something that a lot of Democrats had criticized initially and said they had called it the Treasury's corporate slush fund. But they have succeeded in creating an oversight panel, including a Treasury inspector general that will oversee the dedications of these funds and these loans. And again, these loans, unlike those of small businesses and the loans that they're getting, will have to be paid back and they cannot exceed five years. Elena Train, White House reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And thanks for sticking with me. Another story we're following this week. Many people have lost their jobs or had their wages cut back as companies are slowing or shutting down due to coronavirus concerns. Unemployment claims soared to 3.3 million last week, the most in history. But right now, some of America's biggest employers are trying to hire hundreds of thousands of workers, often foregoing normal hiring practices, hoping to get people started right away. For more on why Walmart, Amazon, grocery stores, pizza chains are all hiring, we spoke to Michael Corkery, reporter at The New York Times. Right now, it's kind of a tale of two economies in that, like you mentioned, I mean, there's just so much economic dislocation among clothing stores, sporting goods stores, restaurants, things where theaters, places where government officials do not want crowds gathering. But on the other side of that, there's a whole list of booming businesses, 
grocery stores, pharmacies, warehouses, distribution centers, as people are stockpiling food and medicine, companies like Walmart, Amazon, Walgreens, CVS, they need more employees. There's some numbers out there showing that food demand in the past two weeks has gone up 30%, and there's just not enough people to sell it at Walmart or to truck it from the distribution centers. So there's a huge hiring push that's that's gone, that's just happening you know, in the past couple of days, hundreds of thousands of temporary workers are being hired to keep up with this crush of demand. We've been hearing non-essential businesses need to close, different things like that. This is the other half of that. These are the essential businesses and industries that we need to keep going. As you mentioned, all the retail stuff and other industries there. So I wanted to go through a couple of the numbers real quick. Walmart is hiring 150,000 workers. Amazon, 100,000 workers. CVS is looking for 50,000 workers, and they're giving people $500 bonuses for the people that have to work on site. Cashiers, people that have to interact with customers. Pizza deliveries. You mentioned the food aspect of this. Everybody's ordering in right now. Domino's and Pizza Hut are both hiring thousands and thousands of workers as well. There's lots of incentives. There's financial incentives to take these jobs in the way of bonuses, but they come with risk. These are jobs that need to be filled, certainly at the grocery stores and in the food delivery space, getting food to people that are especially at risk to their homes. But then again, one of the challenges will be finding enough workers who want to do these jobs, given that by doing them, they're putting themselves and their family at a little bit of a greater risk because they will inevitably have to interact with the public, which is something health officials are telling them not to do. How is the hiring process being affected through all of this? Because a lot of places, it takes two weeks to get somebody to process through all the whole thing, whether it's a background check or just checking back and forth or, or a couple of meetings that you have to do. How is the hiring process being sped up to meet this demand? It's pretty extraordinary. I mean, companies can be pretty sticklers for background checks. Those are being suspended or delayed in some cases. I talked to folks at Pepsi. They said that they're going to hire people conditional on them passing a drug test later, but they'll start them at work even before those drug test results come back because they just need, I think they're hiring about 9,000 people. They need them for their delivery and their distribution network. That's a never before kind of occurrence in corporate America. And it just speaks to the need and the need for more employees. Walmart, the nation's largest employer, they say their process usually takes about two weeks. They're trying to get people on the job within 24 hours. And they're doing a lot of the screening process virtually, uh, FaceTime, all that stuff. No in-person meetings. And people are getting offered jobs without ever really seeing somebody in person. One of the companies you talked to, Lineage Logistics, that said when they bring somebody in finally to formally apply and they have to sign their paperwork, they say they get to keep that pen. We don't even want that pen back. Keep the pen in this day and age. No handshakes. It's amazing how they're compressing the speed of the hiring. And again, that works for some jobs, but not everything. One of the companies I spoke to, if you're going to hire a a forklift driver, you got to make sure that he or she can actually drive a forklift. So yes, a lot can be done virtually before that person shows up for work. You can do a lot of the vetting online as an employer, but in some cases, there still will be workers that are going to need to come in for interviews. But on the whole, this virtual world that we live in is really being used to its fullest. And, you know, there are a lot of advantages to that. And the speed with which this hiring push is is happening shows just how much can be done online. And 
And yeah, that's really playing out here. Yeah. So if you need a job, it's worth it to look out there. And even some companies, GE Healthcare is shifting their manufacturing capacity to make critical health supplies. So even companies are even shifting what their normal production would be. And they still need more people, obviously, to help make some of these health supplies that we're in critical shortage of. There is kind of a shift going on. For example, I spoke to a food service distributor that distributes the food, you know, the meats and the potato chips to the grocery stores. They're hiring workers who were supplying food to restaurants and to schools and to cruise ships. All of that is completely shut down for the most part. So they're trying to shift some of those workers who are already trained. They already know their way around a warehouse. They already know how to drive trucks and should push them over into the grocery side of the business. And then as things even out, when they even out and normalize, those workers can shift right back to where they had been working. So it's really interesting just to see how elastic maybe some of the nation's food and supply chain really is with employees. Michael Corkery, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for your time. And as the race to find treatments for COVID-19 intensifies, scientists have identified 69 drugs that may be effective in treating coronavirus. These drugs still need to be studied and tested as there's no antiviral proven to be effective yet. And doctors can only offer supportive care such as managing fever and using a ventilator in severe cases. For more on these other drugs that scientists are looking into, we spoke to Carl Zimmer, author of A Planet of Viruses. So this is a virus nobody really knew even existed a couple months ago. So scientists have been just scrambling like crazy to understand its biology and to look for weak spots, ways in which they can attack it. And so they're taking a lot of different strategies to search for drugs that could stop an infection. These would be called antivirals. And, you know, there are antivirals that already exist that are used for all sorts of viral infections, and they're effective against some are for HIV, some are for hepatitis and so on. So it's possible that there may be antivirals that are already being tested on for other viruses that might work for the coronavirus. And then there are other people like the ones I wrote about in the New York Times who were saying, well, what are the proteins in our own cells that the viruses depend on? And can we give people drugs to block those proteins so that the viruses can't get at them? It's a different strategy. Might work. It would be great if it did. So basically, everybody is just working as fast as they can to find something that's going to be really effective. It's very tough. Scientists were investigating 26 of the coronavirus's 29 genes, and they found that 332 human proteins are targeted by the coronavirus. So, I mean, there's a lot of give and take there. There's a lot of different receptors. There's so much that goes into this, and doctors are trying to work at this breakneck speed to figure something out. It is a testament to how sophisticated science has become when it comes to viruses. We can read the genes of viruses with incredible speed now. A couple of generations ago, you'd be lucky to just know how many genes a virus had. You wouldn't be able to read them. So there is a lot of technology that can be brought to bear. So, you know, scientists are doing in two or three weeks what would have taken several years in the past. So that's heartening, but we just have to hope that they can get to a point where they're actually able to point to things that are going to actually save lives because certainly in the United States, we're exploding so fast that we don't have any time to waste. Tell us about some of the other drugs that have been seen to possibly be effective or could be candidates to be effective. Chloroquine is one that we hear a lot about right now. 
people really need to cool it on the chloroquine. Chloroquine is a drug that is needed for diseases like malaria or like lupus. There are people who are need to take chloroquine for lupus right now. And if you're going out and hoarding chloroquine, you're depriving people who have lupus from something they need. It's selfish and it's stupid because nobody knows if chloroquine is actually effective. And if it is, they don't know what the right dose is. And there are all sorts of side effects. Chloroquine can mess with your heartbeat. So just thinking that it's going to be a panacea you can pop like M&Ms is crazy. Chloroquine does look like there might be something there, just like a dozen of other drugs look like there might be something there worth checking out. Turns out that there are drugs for Parkinson's disease that target proteins in our cells that the coronavirus needs to use. So let's check these all out. But we have to check them out scientifically. That means putting these drugs into infected cells and seeing if they can clear the virus out. It means doing experiments on animals that are infected with the coronavirus, see if it still works. It means doing careful studies on people, large trials on people to see if it really works without causing even more harmful side effects. Right. And to be clear, what we're talking about are things that scientists are identifying that could possibly help. As you've been just saying, we need to do all the studies. We need to do the clinical trials to see if it would be an effective medicine. You're right. I think a lot of times people hear, oh, this could be working. And then, yeah, they want to go and grab as much of it as they can and all that. This is just to talk about what we're learning more about the virus and all. Speaking of animals, just from one of your articles, I noticed that if they do testing in animals, particularly ferrets, might be used. Can you explain that? Just kind of an interesting side note. Well, it might sound kind of odd that scientists are planning experiments on ferrets, but they are. And the reason is that the coronavirus latches on to certain cells in our lungs, and that's because there's a certain protein on, on those cells. It just so happens that ferrets have similar proteins on their lungs, and so it looks as if they might also be able to develop COVID-19. If you give this virus to a lot of other species, they don't get sick. So if you want to test whether antivirals work, you don't want to test it on an animal that doesn't get sick from this virus. One of the other interesting things I noticed too is, and we heard a lot about it last year, was the gene editing tool CRISPR. I guess there's some researchers that have might have tried to already use this technique possibly to treat coronavirus? There is very preliminary, very basic, and very creative research going on using CRISPR, maybe as a, as a possible antiviral. In theory, it's certainly worth exploring. And so into these very preliminary experiments, what scientists have done is they basically use this technology to create molecules that can recognize the genes of this coronavirus and then shred them to pieces. So you would imagine that you know, a virus infects a cell and if you've treated somebody with these molecules and those molecules are in the cell, they'll, they'll recognize this virus's genes and they're making new copies and just destroy them all. That would be the hope. It would be great, but that's way more preliminary than some of this other stuff that we were talking about. Carl Zimmer, columnist at the New York Times and author of A Planet of Viruses. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.